In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Today's passage in John's Gospel opens a remarkable window on the heart of Jesus. Here is the crowning moment of his ministry among his followers. On the last night with them, he's broken bread with them. He's washed their feet, taught them about the work he's giving them to do. And finally, as he prepares to leave them and entrust his work to them, he prays for them. He prays for them. Our Jesus is a praying Savior. He prayed for us and for the success of his mission, that mission of death and resurrection throughout the days of his time here on the earth. With loud cries and tears, says the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 5 or 7 of his letter. Jesus prayed for Peter, even during Peter's denial, says Luke chapter 22, verse 32. And on this first Sunday after the ascension, we celebrate the fact that Jesus prays for us still at the right hand of the Father, for he ever lives to intercede for those who come to God through him and whom he has determined to bring all the way home. So says the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 7, verse 25 of his, of his letter. Question is, how do you how do you and I feel his prayers at the right hand of the Father? How do they how do they get into us? Our passages in John and 1 Peter suggest three ways. One, you feel his prayers when you step down from the throne of your life, when you renounce pride. Notice 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, that we just read a moment ago. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you in due time. Isn't humbling himself under the mighty hand of God exactly what John 17 says Jesus is doing? And now I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. He will step aside and humbly give over his work to others, to the likes of you and me. John chapter 17, verse 11. Humbly, he says his work is finished and it's time for others. But so much seems to be unfinished. Let me, let me draw out a lesson from the play that we did just this last weekend, Dorothy L. Sayers' Amazing, The Zeal of Thy House. Well, a little background music. For three years in a row, from 1937 through 1930, from 1935 through 1937, the Canterbury Festival over in the United Kingdom featured plays about believers who leave the scene right in the middle of their work. Archbishop Thomas Beckett by murder, Archbishop Thomas Cramner by martyrdom, and architect William of Sens, rebuilder of the cathedral after its 1174 fire. William of Sens leaves by way of accidental fall. In each case, their work only flourishes 
after their departure. William of Sons, Frenchman, oddly, has been hired by this chapter of this most English cathedral that had been destroyed by fire in 1174. And you remember the Battle of Hastings where the French were the really bad guys was only 100 years prior. William, and, but William would have been a leading artist of his day, experimenting with the r relatively new Gothic architecture that was redefining the medieval landscape. And as brilliant as he is, William's life, as Sayers imagines it, is full of the sins of lust, wrath, greed, all of which he is aware, but mostly a pride of which he is lethally unaware. Four years into the project, he falls some 50 feet from the scaffolding and is permanently disabled. Now, he will try to hold on to his position, but eventually must give it up. And that is what the Canterbury scribe, Gervais, who is, brilliant, who is wonderfully played by our own Gail Paget, uh, says ha happened. But what Ms. Sayers imagines is that William's fall parallels the fall of Lucifer and Adam and becomes the means by which William must learn for the first time what Christ, humbling himself to become man and to die on a cross, came to accomplish for him. That his disability, robbed of the ability to pursue his fleshly faults, William, brilliantly played by Bill of Jamaica, uh, Bill, our own Bill Anderson, William of Sons confesses everything he can think of, his fleshly faults of, of lust, of wrath, of greed, and receives absolution. But despite Father Pryor's, played as best I can, despite Father Pryor's best efforts, William is unable to see that there is a deeper sin, a sin of pride, of a prideful heart that is so much a part of him, he's just not capable of seeing it until there's angelic invention. Mikael, the archangel, and that's spelled Michael, but Miss Sayers wants us to call him Mikael, which we had a lot of fun with, was played elegantly by David de Quattro. Mikael, the archangel, appears to William and tells him of the kind of a Jesus he had never been able to imagine bowing his neck under the galling yoke, frustrate, defeated, half his life unlived. And William asks, well, could God being God do this? And Mikael answers, Christ being man did this, but still through faith knew what he did. The earth was rent, the sun's face turned to blood, but he, unshaken with exultant voice, cried, it is finished, and gave up his ghost. Finished, when men had thought it scarce begun. What said he afterwards? I go, but feed my sheep. For me, the Sabbath at the long week's close. For you, the task. For you, the tongues of fire. Thus shalt thou know the master architect who plans so well he may depart and leave the work to others. That takes some confidence, but it takes some humility. And leave the work to others. Precisely in anticipation of that reality, Jesus leaves. 
himself satisfied that his work here is done. His life, ministry, teaching, death for sin, resurrection for life, and ascension to empower, laying the foundations of the building, the house for God's dwelling. But his disciples decidedly not so sure that that work was done, and yet entrusted with a job as we are, of building out the scaffolding and filling in the rest of the building, God's house. To that end, Jesus prays this prayer in John chapter 17. William of Sons realized, I've sinned, I have committed the eldest sin, pride. The same one that struck down the morning star from heaven it struck me down where I sat and shone smiling on my new world. But Mikael assures him, you shall surely not die, save as he died, nor suffer, save with him, nor lie in hell, for he hath conquered hell and flung the gates wide open. They that bear the cross with him, with him shall wear a crown such as the angels know not. And so William Assange, Bill of Jamaica, lets the work go. And he recommends another William, William the Englishman, to finish the cathedral, and he retires to France. And Gervais tells us, William the Englishman honors William Assange's contribution and adds his own. And just so, a profound lesson for us here as we gather for worship on this first Sunday after the ascension, Jesus humbly hands his work to us as he completes it through us from his position as the gift outpouring, praying, ascended one. Two, how do you feel his prayers? You feel his prayers when you adopt the anxiety prevention practice of thanksgiving. Here again, 1 Peter 5, chapter, chapter 5, verse 7. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. You know anything about anxiety? And consider its parallel in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The last, <clears throat> the last year has been a year of high anxiety for Mrs. Kidd and me. And so our Lenten discipline was to give up anxiety. And so what we did during Lent was to each one, was each day to take a post-it and write something that we were thankful for because that's the antidote for anxiety, thanksgiving. And so we would put it in our gratitude jar. And so here, uh, first birthdays of Abel Jack, Matilda Mack, and the birth of Jack Jack. We, we've been married 47 years, no grandchildren. And all of a sudden, by the time we get to 48, we got three grandchildren. That's something to be thankful for in the midst of, in the midst of all kinds of other things. Well, well, at any rate, so, so many things to be thankful for. And anxiety just goes, well, never mind when you're thankful. So three, 
You feel his prayer. And this is what Jesus is praying for, that we be free from anxiety. And the way that we see his prayers answered is that we give thanks and anxiety just goes away. Well, almost. Three, you feel his prayers when you step across the aisle for the sake of the oneness of the body of Christ. Remember John chapter 17, verse 11 that we just read. Holy Father, protect them in your name that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. You know, it's interesting that Jesus says in verse 4 of John 17, I glorified you by finishing the work that you gave me to do. And that includes the words that you gave me, I've given to them. Jesus says, I finished, and that includes giving them all the words that they need. One could possibly object. Well, wait, Jesus, there's so many words you haven't given us. Surely you can look down the corridors of history and see that we're going to disagree on many things because you haven't spelled it all out. Baptism, on Eucharist, on how long sermons should be, or whether music should be high art or folk art or pop art, on predestination versus free will, on whether there's a godly form of government, whether to lobby for more rights or more responsibility. Well, Jesus, surely you can see all the things that will divide us in the year of our Lord 2023. Couldn't you have said more? But Jesus seems to feel he has said enough. Holy Father, protect them in your name that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. Apparently, Jesus meant to leave some things open to interpretation because we need each other. We need to read side by side and we need to talk about what we're reading. We need to consider together what his words say and what they mean. We, and what they mean, we need each other to enhance, to challenge, to correct each other's readings. What the body seems to require is a dynamic tension in worshipful, loving, mutual submission between dunkers and sprinklers between sacramentalists and memorialists, between predestinarians and free willers, between those who appreciate the substitutionary, those who appreciate the exemplary, and those who appreciate the victorious dimensions of Christ's death on the cross for us, between red state defenders of some rights and responsibilities and blue state defenders of other rights and responsibilities. We need each other together committed to the proposition that if we spend enough time side by side on our knees and shoulder to shoulder in our labors, one day, if only when we see him face to face, we will see eye to eye in all things. The payoff? One of the things that Jesus does say here is that when the world sees our oneness in worship, and service and discipleship, the world will know for sure that God is for real and that we are for real. So this week, I commend to you four things. One, pray. Pray knowing that Jesus prays with you and for you. Two, 
If there's one area in your life where pride has you thinking you are indispensable, take a beat and ask, am I asking too much of myself? Do I need to take a step back? If Jesus could humble himself under the mighty hand of God, so can I. Three, take at least a few minutes to name what's got you anxious, because I bet you are, and counter with some things that make you thankful. Because trust me, you can cast all your anxiety on him, for he cares for you. And four, four, could I encourage you to pick up the phone and say hi to one person you know doesn't think exactly like you? Because Jesus wants us to be as one as he and his father are one. And in fact, that's how the world is going to know they are for real and how we are for real. God bless you. Amen.